0: Welcome to PICU Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamath, coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine.
1: And I'm Rahul Demania from Cleveland Clinic Children's Hospital. And we are two pediatric ICU physicians passionate about all things med ed in the PICU. PICU Doc on Call focuses on interesting PICU cases and management in the acute care pediatric setting. So let's get into our episode.
0: In today's episode, we discuss about a 12-year-old male with lethargy after ingestion. Here's the case presented by Rahul.
1: A 12-year-old male is found unresponsive at home. He was previously well and has no relevant past medical history. Mother states that he was recently in an argument with the sister. And his mother thought he was going into his room to have some space. Mother noticed patient was in his room for about one hour. After coming into the room, she noticed him drooling, minimally responsive, and cold to the touch. The patient was noted to be moaning in pain, pointing to his abdomen and breathing fast. Dark red vomitus was surrounding the patient. Mother called 911 as she was concerned about his neurological state. With 911 on the way, Mother noticed a set of empty vitamins next to the patient. She noted that these were the iron pills the patient's sister was on for anemia. EMS arrives for acute stabilization, and the patient is brought to the emergency department. En route, his serum glucose was normal. The patient presents to the emergency department with hypothermia, tachycardia, tachypnea, and hypertension. His GCS is 8, he has poor peripheral perfusion, and a diffusely tender abdomen. He continues to have hematemesis and is intubated for airway protection along with declining neurological status. After resuscitation, he presents to the pediatric ICU. Upon intubation, an arterial blood gas is drawn. His pH, 7.22, PCO2, 34, PaO2, 110, and a base deficit of minus 6. A serum bicarbonate is 16 and his anion gap is elevated.
0: To summarize key elements from this case, this 12-year-old boy has lethargy and unresponsiveness after an acute ingestion. His hematemesis is most likely related to his acute ingestion. And finally, he has an anion gap metabolic acidosis as evidenced by his low pH and low bicarb. All of these salient factors bring up concern for acute iron ingestion. In today's episode, we will not only go through acute management pills for iron poisoning, but also go back to fundamentals and cover acid-base disorders.
1: We will break this episode down into a broad overview of acid-base, building a stepwise approach to tackling blood gases, and apply our knowledge with some integrated cases. We will use a physiologic approach to cover this topic. Now, Pradeep, can you give us a quick overview of some general principles when it comes to tackling this high-yield critical care topic?
0: Absolutely. Internal acid-base homeostasis is paramount for maintaining life. Moreover, we know that accurate and timely interpretation of an acid-base disorder can be life-saving. When we conceptualize acid-base today, we will focus on pH, which is power of hydrogen, bicarb, and CO2. As we go into each disorder, keep in mind to always correlate your interpretation of blood gases to the clinical status of the patient. Going back to basic chemistry, Rahul, can you comment about the relationship of CO2 and bicarb?
1: Yes. And Pradeep, this definitely is a throwback. However, we have to review when we're talking about CO2 and bicarb, the Henderson-Hasselbalch equation. Now, the equation has constants and complicated logarithms involved. However, in general, an acid-base disorder is called respiratory when it's caused by a primary abnormality in respiratory function, i.e. a change in the PCO2. And an acid-base disorder is called metabolic when the primary change is attributed to a variation in the bicarbonate concentration. Now that we have some fundamentals down, let's go ahead and move into definitions. Pradeep, can you define acidemia and alkalemia and comment on how the sampling sites may vary these definitions?
0: Rahul, acidemia is defined as an arterial pH below 7.35. Alkalemia is defined as an arterial pH greater than 7.45. Does the normal pH range for an arterial blood gas is from 7.35 to 7.45. Bicarbonate concentration anywhere from 21 to 27 milliequivalents per liter, and PCO2 about 35 to 45 millimeters of mercury. Of note, when your serum bicarb is greater than 24 milliequivalents per liter, you start spilling bicarbonate in your urine. Now, Pradeep, what about the venous side? That's a great question, Rahul. Normal values for peripheral venous blood gases differ from those of arterial blood due to the uptake and buffering of metabolically produced CO2 in the capillary circulation and the addition of organic acids produced by the tissue bed drained by the vein. The range for peripheral venous pH is approximately 0.03 to 0.04 pH units lower than in arterial blood. The bicarbonate concentration is approximately 2 to 3 milliequivalents higher, and the PCO2 is approximately 3 to 8 millimeters of mercury higher.
1: Now, these subtleties are important physiologic considerations as you trend blood gases. For example, if you have a venous blood gas of 7.32, on the arterial side, it may be correlated to a value of 7.35. Similarly, on the venous side, if you have a CO2 of 48, on the arterial side, it's going to be about five millimeters of mercury lower, so around
0: 43. Rahul, we mentioned that prior to chasing gases, it's important to assess patient's clinical state. Can you comment on this a bit more?
1: Absolutely, Pradeep. And this goes back to the importance of a great history and physical exam. So the key here is that Various signs and symptoms often provide clues regarding the underlying acid-base disorder. These include the patient's vital sign, which may indicate shock or sepsis, the patient's neurological state, their pulmonary status, for example, their respiratory rate, or the presence or absence of Kussmaul respirations, as well as gastrointestinal symptoms such as vomiting and diarrhea. All of these clinical patient symptoms can affect your acid-base homeostasis. Now we saw some of these in our case. We should also take into account any medications that can affect acid-base balance in our assessment of acute acid-base changes. This was especially important in our case as the patient had an acute iron ingestion. Now, relevant medications to consider when we're talking about acid-base homeostasis include laxatives, diuretics, topiramate, etc., And we want to do is watch for specific ingestions, such as methanol, for example, which can cause blindness.
0: So Rahul, as we dive into the various disorders, can you frame an approach to acid-based blood gas interpretation?
1: Absolutely. I think having a systematic approach to blood gas interpretation is paramount. Here are the three steps which I use. Number one, establish the primary acid-based abnormality are we dealing with an acidemia or an alkalemia? Number two, establish what value correlates with the primary acid-based disorder, i.e. is it CO2 or is it bicarb? Think of it as you arguing for your acidosis or alkalosis. So for example, when you diagnose an acidemia, a metabolic acidosis is characterized by a low serum bicarbonate. Also, it is important to note that for each 10 millimeters of mercury of PCO2 that is above normal, the pH falls by 0.08 units. Finally, we want to assess for compensation. For example, in a metabolic alkalosis, your lungs will compensate by increasing your CO2 via hypoventilation. Please note that renal compensation may take 24 to 48 hours after your initial respiratory acidosis or alkalosis.
0: Yes, I think this point of compensation is important to note, especially when assessing for mixed disorders. If you take, for example, acute respiratory acidosis, the normal compensatory response to acute respiratory acidosis is an increase in serum bicarbonate concentration by approximately 1 milliequivalent for every 10 millimetres of mercury increase in PCO2. When the respiratory acidosis persists for more than 3 to 5 days, bicarbonate increases by approximately 3.5 to 5 milliequivalents per liter for every 10 increase in PCO2.
1: Important to note, with the exception of chronic respiratory alkalosis and mild to moderate respiratory acidosis, compensatory responses do not usually return the arterial pH back to normal.
0: Yes, in fact, in contrast with older data, Data from more recent studies indicate that pH in chronic respiratory acidosis may be normal and in individual cases higher than generally recognized which is basically a pH of greater than 7.4. Let's revisit our index case to review acid base disturbance. Rahul, do you mind refreshing our memory on his initial ABG?
1: Absolutely. In our case, the patient's pH was 7.22. His pCO2 was 34. His PaO2 was 110, and his bicarb was 16, with the base deficit of minus 6.
0: So Rahul, can you take us through the stepwise approach on how to tackle this blood gas?
1: Absolutely. So this patient has a pH of 7.22, so we can say that he has acidemia. Now, what supports an acidemia is a low bicarbonate, so we can say it is a metabolic acidosis. And in the case of a metabolic acidosis, it is important for us to assess the degree of compensation using
0: Winter's formula. Rahul, what is the Winter's formula?
1: Winter's formula defines how much compensation you are going to get from an underlying metabolic acidosis. The formal equation is PCO2 is equal to 1.5 times your bicarb plus eight. And typically you get a range of plus or minus two. Now, in this case, our expected CO2 given our bicarb of 16, would be 30 to 34. And going back to our case, our patient's PCO2 was 34. So this is a true metabolic acidosis, i.e. it is a not a mixed metabolic acidosis. It is a simple metabolic acidosis. Now, the patient had an anion gap metabolic acidosis, Pradeep. Can you tell us a little bit more about what is the anion gap?
0: Disorders that produce metabolic acidosis by increasing organic acid generation, like in the case of ingestion, or causes increased accumulation of phosphoric and sulfuric acids, such as severe chronic kidney disease, can usually result in increased serum anion gap. Now, anion gap can be conceptually stated as sodium plus all unmeasured cations equals chloride plus bicarb plus all unmeasured anions. In general, it is the positives minus negatives. And clinically, we simplify this as sodium minus chloride plus bicarb. Normally, an anion gap is anywhere from 8 to 12. If anion gap is elevated, we recognize that there is some organic acid that is creating a gap between these positives and negatives. Now, Rahul, we may have a patient with hypoalbuminemia Would this affect the anion gap? Yes, it
1: definitely can. Actually, in healthy individuals, the major unmeasured anion responsible for the existence of a serum anion gap is albumin. Now, this circulating protein has a significant negative charge in the physiologic pH range. As a result, the expected baseline value for the anion gap must be adjusted downward in patients with hypoalbuminemia. Thus, the corrected serum anion gap formula is the serum anion gap which was measured plus 2.5 times the quantity 4.5 minus the serum albumin you get in your RFP.
0: I also want to add to this that anything that increases fluoride, bromide, chloride will also give you a low anion gap. And I think that may be a question on the board sometimes. It is important to note that in addition to hypoalbinemia, marked hyperkalemia may affect the interpretation of the anion gap.
1: Now, with the metabolic acidosis, think about two things. Calculate the anion gap and Winter's formula for compensation.
0: So Rahul, I think if they get a question on the boards that gives them electrolytes, I think the test taker should immediately calculate an anion gap. So, clinically, what would be a good differential to keep in mind with elevated anion gap metabolic acidosis?
1: Now, traditionally, the mnemonic in medical school was taught as mud piles. However, let me give it just a little bit of a flair and consider this mnemonic CAT mud piles, which stands for carbon monoxide and cyanide, aminoglycosides, theophylline. So, that's your CAT, and now mud piles, methanol, uremia diabetic ketoacidosis, paracetamol or acetaminophen as well as peraldehyde, I for iron isoniazid inborn errors of metabolism, L for lactic acidosis, E for ethanol and ethylene glycol, and S for salicylate.
0: So lactic acidosis is frequently encountered in the pediatric intensive care setting. It is one of our most common causes of an elevated anion gap metabolic acidosis and in general, indicates poor oxygen delivery, mitochondrial paralysis, or increased consumption. Please review our podcast entitled Oxygen Delivery to review this foundational PQ concept. As an advanced integration, Rahul, can you comment on the delta anion gap slash delta bicarbonate ratio in patients with elevated anion gap metabolic acidosis? The most common cause of acute
1: high anion gap acidosis in the PQ is lactic acidosis and ketoacidosis. The degree to which the anion gap rises in relation to the fall in bicarb varies with the cause of the metabolic acidosis. So when the anion gap increases in magnitude as a result of metabolic acidosis, that increase should be compared with the magnitude of the fall in bicarbonate. So you really wanna compare pH and bicarbonate. And all of this is represented by the delta anion gap over the delta bicarb ratio, where delta anion gap is the patient's value of the anion gap minus the normal anion gap, like we mentioned, 8 to 12. And delta bicarbonate is a normal serum bicarb, i.e., 24, minus the patient's serum bicarbonate. So remember, this is a ratio. In our patient, we had a delta anion gap. Of 9 divided by a delta bicarbonate of 8. Now, the normal value of a delta anion gap over a delta bicarb ratio is between 1 and 1.6. Now, Pradeep, what if you have a low delta anion gap, delta bicarbonate ratio?
0: A lower value in which the delta anion gap is less than expected from the delta bicarbonate can be seen in a number of settings. In ketoacidosis, D-lactic acidosis, or tulin intoxication, the accumulating organic acid anions can be excreted by the kidney as sodium and potassium salts. As a result, in these disorders, the delta anion gap slash delta bicarbonate ratio is often below 1, and serum anion gap may be normal. A higher value of the ratio above 1.6 usually reflects a mixed acid-based disorder, in which a higher anion gap acidosis coexists with a process that elevates serum bicarb.
1: As we pivot back to our case, he had an elevated anion gap metabolic acidosis secondary to acute iron poisoning. After the airway breathing circulation tenants,
0: what are next best steps in management? Great question. Severe symptoms and an anion gap metabolic acidosis, indications for iron chelation using IV desferioxamine. You would definitely want to consult with a medical toxicologist and or regional poison control center. At times in acute iron overdose, you may also see radioopaque pills visible on plain radiograph of the abdomen. This may also be a sign of severe poisoning.
1: Just to summarize and important to note, because iron does not bind to activated charcoal, GID contamination for acute iron poisoning consists of whole bowel irrigation and rarely orogastric lavage via upper endoscopy. The severity of disease can be guided based on the plain abdominal radiographs which you'll get in the acute pediatric care setting. In most patients, the risk of gastric lavage following iron overdose outweighs the limited benefit. Now to wrap up our discussion on metabolic acidosis, Pradeep, what are some common causes of non-anion gap metabolic acidosis?
0: As a big picture, non-anion gap metabolic acidosis usually results from a loss of bicarbonate or an isolated reduction in renal acid excretion. The most common cause of non-anion gap metabolic acidosis we see in the PICU include diarrhea or nasogastric losses, proximal type 2 RTA or even type 1 and type 4 RTA where there is impaired renal acid excretion. We also frequently encounter hyperchloremia, and a non-gap metabolic acidosis with resuscitation using fluids such as normal saline as it provides a huge chloride load. Adult studies show that infusing more than three to four liters of normal saline can cause acidosis.
1: Frequently, Pradeep, as a fellow, when we see a metabolic acidosis, we reflexively think about administering bicarbonate. Can you shed some clinical pearls on this management decision?
0: I think in a pinch, it is appropriate to consider, especially if pH is less than 7.1 or in some patients less than 7.2 and clinically the patient is not stable. Although IV bicarb may be helpful if administered to children with severe acute metabolic acidosis, the therapeutic focus should be on slowing the rate of acid generation, i.e. correcting the cause of acidosis. In general, shooting for a gold pH of greater than 7.2 and or serum bicarbonate concentration greater than 16 milliequivalents should be considered. We frequently dose bicarbonate as 1 to 2 milliequivalents per kilo, keeping in mind that the typical vial has about 50 milliequivalents of bicarbonate.
1: I also do want to add that at times when you do give a heavy bicarbonate load and the patient has a concurrent chronic or acute respiratory acidosis, your bicarbonate can exacerbate your elevated CO2. So as mixed disorders are important to recognize, let's conclude this episode by revisiting some compensation formulas. Pradeep, can you review some of these important compensation formulas?
0: Absolutely. In acute respiratory acidosis, which is less than a day old, the serum bicarb concentration increases by one milliequivalent per liter for every 10 increase in the pco2 from the normal chronic respiratory acidosis usually greater than 3 to 5 days serum bicarbonate increases by about 4 milliequivalents per liter for every 10 millimeters of mercury elevation in pco2 in patients with chronic respiratory acidosis acute respiratory alkalosis the serum bicarb concentration decreases by 2 milliequivalents per liter for every 10 decline in the PCO2 from the normal. In chronic, bicarbonate will fall by about four millimoles per liter. So Rahul, what about metabolic alkalosis?
1: The respiratory compensation to metabolic alkalosis should raise the PCO2 by approximately 0.7 millimeters of mercury for every one elevation in the serum bicarbonate concentration. A very easy-to-use relationship is the PCO2 in your acute metabolic alkalosis is the bicarbonate plus 10. Studies have shown that high CO2 levels are probably generated by respiratory muscle weakness associated with marked hypokalemia and potassium depletion, which almost invariably develop in these patients. This is classically seen in a baby with dehydration and pyloric stenosis. It may also help to obtain Urine electrolytes such as urinary chloride in metabolic alkalosis. We will visit an approach to urinary chloride interpretation in future
0: episodes. We talked about a wide breadth of topics today. Rahul, can you please summarize? So, key objective takeaways from this podcast today trend
1: blood gases based on similar sampling sites. Remember, for a peripheral venous sample, the range for pH is approximately 0.03 to 0.04 units lower than in arterial blood. Number two, have a stepwise approach for acid-based disorders. We covered number one, establish alkalemia versus acidemia, which value CO2 or bicarb supports your primary disorder, and then assess for compensation. And then finally, in a metabolic acidosis, you'll have a low pH and a low bicarb, and make sure you do anion gap calculation as well as Winter's formula.
0: This concludes our episode on the approach to acid-based disorders. We hope you found value in our short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.